Hey everybody, I hope everyone's staying safe out there, but this is episode 12 of Digging Deeper. Let's go! On this episode of Digging Deeper, I had the pleasure of talking to my friend and colleague, Dr. Christopher Labos. Chris is a cardiologist in Montreal, as well as a clinical epidemiologist who has a weekly column on the Montreal Gazette, answering some of the common medical questions from the public. As well, he's been very active in CTV News and CBC News as a medical correspondent during COVID-19. So it's my pleasure to talk to him today about where we are at with COVID-19. We talk about how COVID-19 has affected us personally and professionally. What are some of the news coming out regarding vaccines and rapid testing and new medical treatments? We also talk about the dilemma facing parents about whether they should send their kids back to school. And what are some of our predictions on how long this pandemic is going to go on for As usual, if you like this podcast and my previous podcast, feel free to leave a comment on whatever platform you use to listen to the podcast, as well as to give me five-star likes so that other people can find the podcast. So please have a listen, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Christopher Labos. So I have Dr. Christopher Labos uh, on the phone, Skype, all the way from Montreal, Quebec. How's it going, Labos? Thanks for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a while since we uh, had a talk, and uh, but I've been watching you from afar. I see, I see you on uh, Facebook and uh, CTV News and CBC News, and uh, yeah. I gotta say, you're you're definitely the right man for the job. So, congrats on that. Well, thank you. That's very kind. That's very kind. Yeah, and uh, my actually my first question for you is, uh, how does it feel to be the Greek Canadian version of Dr. Sanjay Gupta? Uh, <laughs> it's fun, actually. <laughs> Listen, you know, everyone, everyone sort of asks me the same question. Like, you know, do you, do you get paid for all this, like, news media stuff that you do? And the answer, of course, is no, not at all, right? Um, I do it because I enjoy it. I do it because it's fun. Everybody's like, oh, don't you get tired? Don't you want to take a break? Take a vacation? I'm like, no, because it's fun for me. Like, it doesn't require much work. I, you know, they give, I, I get the call, I sit down in front of my computer, we do the, you know, the, the interview and it's like done in like five minutes. It's like, it's, it's, it's for me, it's a lot of fun to do. So it's like, it's not like work. I, I do my regular work seeing patients and this I do for fun on the side and I, I completely enjoy it. So it's, it's, um, I don't know. It's good. I, I feel like it's useful for people. At least I hope it is. And, uh, you know, th- th- that's why I do it. And that's why I don't mind doing it, even though it like costs me nothing. Co- it, 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 it gains me no money and uh, has no personal benefit to me whatsoever. Uh, but I enjoy doing it. So it makes it all worthwhile. But you know what? Most people enjoy doing things that they're good at. And I definitely think you're good at it. And actually, I remember when we were in fellowship. During one of our academic half days, it was about uh, epidemiology. And I still remember you uh, explaining sensitivity and specificity better than I could ever explain it even to this day. So I definitely think uh, doing this and epidemiology is right up your alley. So, uh, So good on you, buddy. 
Thank you. Thank. I actually remember that academic half day. Believe it or not. Yeah, I, uh, I remember it very clearly. I remember it's true, and it's it's you know, and it's funny because there's all these concepts that people just assume that everybody knows, but they're actually like really complex, yeah. and it's very easy to get stuff wrong and to misinterpret and to think something means X when it actually means Y, and that's how you can get confused. And if we can get yeah. confused, imagine the public, how easy it is for them to get confused. Yeah. And you know, honestly, I've been watching you um, on CTV News and CBC News. You really break it down really so, you know, everyone can understand, uh, including myself with the medical background, who's not mm -hmm. very strong in epidemiology. So, uh, mm -hmm. so no, it's been very, very clear and concise. So I want to kind of jump into how's your experience been uh, with COVID in Montreal, both, you know, as a physician, and both personally, I mean, we're kind of at the six-month mark now since everything um, uh, turned for, for all of us here in Canada. So, so how's it been? Uh, it's been stressful. It's been stressful. I mean, Montreal was, was pretty bad for a while there. I mean, yeah. we were like one of the worst cities in the world, let alone in Canada. Um, yeah. Things have, of course, fortunately gotten uh, a lot better now, thankfully. Um, but it was stressful. I mean, nobody really knew how this was going to play out at the beginning. I mean, we, they were talking about, you know, reassigning doctors and people covering the ICU. And it was, it was you know, there was, I was sweating a little bit uh, at the beginning. Um, so, I mean, thankfully, that's for the most part done now. And hopefully we don't get a, a second wave in the fall, but we'll see. Uh, but personally, it was tough. I mean, you know, we I think we all had to change our routine. There was a lot of stress that went with it trying to keep track of all my outpatients was uh, very difficult uh, mm -hmm. especially because we just didn't really have an infrastructure in place for telehealth you know and we're all sort of making this up on the fly and, and i have a um a patient population that tends to be on the older side right. so a lot of them were not good with technology not very comfortable explaining stuff on the phone so it was a it was a it was a challenge uh and so adapting to that was you know, quite, quite difficult, I have to say. So I think we've gotten better at it now, but, uh, you know, it was not easy at first. And I was, I was stressed. I mean, I was, I, I the joke was that I had a little bit of PTSD by the end of it. And, uh, <laughs> I, but I felt myself, I felt myself like losing my cool easier. I felt myself getting stressed out easier, uh, like around, around June, July, like I was really starting to feel it. And then I took some time off in August. I had some vacation time coming. It was like a pre-planned vacation. So I just basically stayed home uh, and did nothing. Yeah, you had, uh, you had I, some uh, classic symptoms of maybe burnout around yeah. June and July, you know, easily irritable and yeah. just getting really yeah. fatigued. And honestly, I think we're all going through pandemic fatigue, yeah. um, both personally and professionally. You know, actually, I had a very similar experience over here on the West Coast. We weren't as bad. We were lucky. Um, but there were anxious moments here for us in March because, like you said, a lot of unknowns, you know. Yeah. We didn't know if we were going to get this surge in hospitalizations and how sick people were going to get. So we I, we basically shut everything down. Um, we had really good leadership from both um, the hospital I work at and also our health authority. And it was, so I would say we were prepared. But luckily, that surge never happened. And honestly... The few nights I was on call in March, it was the quietest nights that I've been on call in the last nine years. And even walking through the emergency room and on the ward, it was it was like a ghost town. Yeah. Um, but that was all in preparation for a surge that never happened and hopefully mm -hmm. still doesn't happen coming in fall and winter. Um, but yeah, I think adjusting with uh, delivering healthcare in a different way through phone was, was different. Um, 
and definitely an adjustment period. And personally, I think for me, because I have like a, a one-year-old at home, it didn't really affect us too much, to be honest. I think we would mostly be staying at home anyways. Yeah. And it was, you know, you hear everyone saying, well, it's nice to have that downtime and slow down the pace and whatnot. But I think it's only lasted until maybe April and May. And then after May, <laughs> June, people were like, okay, enough of this. Let's uh, try to get back to normal life. Well, no, and I, th- I think it really depends what your life was like. And I had the same conversation with some friends of mine from Winnipeg, also uh, also physicians. And they were like, yeah, it hasn't affected us at all. They have two young kids at home. Yeah. So they basically go to work, come home, take care of their kids. Like they weren't going out partying and I'm not much of a party person either. So yeah, it didn't really affect my lifestyle all that much. Yeah. Um, you know, I go to work, I come home, I go for my runs on the mountain or run by the canal or, you know, and run. And then I come home and I read and I write, I write my articles, I do my research for the coming day's interview. So it's like, it's not a, like really like I'm the type of person that goes out to like clubs and restaurants and whatever. Right. But I've spoken with people for whom social outings and restaurants were like, a huge deal yeah and they were like really affected by this to the point where as i would talk to people and they're like oh you want to go out to a restaurant like when things opened up and i'm like no i don't why do you like it's really important i'm like you know why don't you just come over i'll make you dinner you know like like we don't have to go out to a restaurant and sit in a room with like a hundred other people like i'm not i don't think this is a good idea yeah Um, i mean it really depends on your lifestyle i totally agree and you know i don't know if you found this to be true but even when I talk to my patients, the group of patients that are coping well are tend to be like the retirees who, yeah. aside from not being able to travel, they were quite comfortable staying at home and um, having their kids deliver groceries to them and staying safe because they know they're kind of higher risk population. But when I talk to them, how are you doing? They're like, no, we're doing pretty good. Not bad. But then there's that population, like you said, that are very social and they can't go on social outings. And the other population that I found has been struggling is kind of people who uh, were working and can't work anymore, uh, who have young kids at home who are in school and they're having to homeschool and and having some kind of difficulties making financial ends meet. I have found that they were obviously having more difficulty coping and definitely demonstrating more anxiety-related symptoms, I I would have to say. A lot of palpitations and atypical chest pain and whatnot. Oh, yeah, no, there's a lot of people complaining of stress. And I mean, again, and I guess we have a a very uh, slanted view of what reality was like, because I mean, you and I, we still had to do our jobs, right? Like nothing really changed for us, Um, especially, you know, if you when you do outpatient, like in hospital, yeah, in hospital, slow down, right? When everything shut down, that that for sure was was true. But if you had an outpatient practice, I mean, you still had all these patients, all these patients who needed their regular follow-up. You still had to call them. You still had to, like, you know, make sure they were getting their results checked, make sure their next six-month follow-up was planned. So, like, I, I didn't slow down uh, uh, really very much throughout, throughout throughout this pandemic. So it's it, you almost have to remind yourself, yeah, for a lot of a lot of people were worried about their jobs. A lot of people yeah. were worried about you know what the future was going to hold. So when people talked about oh we have to restart the economy, I mean on the one hand I think some of that was very much overstated because the economy is not going to matter much if you were dead and nobody really knew how this pandemic was 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 going to to play out at the beginning. But yeah. You know, yeah, we we forget that a lot of people were very worried about their economic livelihood. And, uh, you know, it's you have to take that into account, although I still think as a general rule, public health should probably take precedence over 
the economy, at least in the you know very short term, when you have a new virus emerging that's killing thousands of people. Actually, that so that leads me into uh, uh, the next question I wanted to ask you was, you know, where are we at now? So it's been six months. Um, mm-hmm. We kind of, I wouldn't say survived, but we kind of went through the first phase, and and now we're seeing an uptick in cases with the gradual reopenings of different uh, things in society. And, you know, a lot of times in the news you read now about the younger generation, the, the 20s and 30-year-olds that um, people are saying not taking this pandemic seriously and kind of doing their own parties and house parties and gatherings. And that's the population that we're seeing the uptake in cases. So, you know, how, like, it's always a, a cost-benefit, you know, so you know, people are worried about their jobs, but yes, at the same time, people don't want to die. So, so where, where are we at in terms of how do, how do we kind of manage both uh, effectively? Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I mean, so where are we now? We've gone through the first wave. Um, now, there's, there's this huge debate about like, when do you, what do you call a wave and what do you call a peak? Um, so just for people who, if people are interested about the terminology, when you talk about a first wave versus a second wave for the first wave to be over, you have to have cases go down to zero or very near zero. So there's some debate about did the first wave ever really end? Because at least here in Quebec, uh, and Ontario, we're getting over a hundred new cases a day. Like it never really dropped down below a hundred. It maybe did for a couple of days then came back up again. So there was always constant viral spread. So on the one hand, you might want to, you could make the argument that the first wave never ended, but certainly the first peak is over. Mm-hmm. Um, what's going to be interesting, I sort of alluded to this before, is coronavirus going to behave like most other circulating respiratory viruses, like most other coronaviruses? Because most other viruses peak in the winter time, go away in the summer, and then come back in the winter. And they come back in the winter for a few reasons. One is viruses tend to transmit easier in, in colder weather. That's part of it when there's less humidity. But it's also that our behavior changes. We spend more time indoors. Schools restart. And the whole issue that's being done now as schools are starting up again, um, we know children are a major spreader of viruses like the flu or common colds. And so the question is, are children going to be spreaders of coronavirus? And we don't really know. Um, There is some evidence that children are less likely to pass the virus on than adults. But low risk doesn't mean zero risk. And so today, as we're recording this, is the first day of schools reopening here in Quebec. So everybody is very, very nervous, and uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, the 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 joke uh, that I've had is is uh, I've seen I've seen this on Facebook a few places. Like somebody was saying, "Like, wow, I can't I can't believe March break is finally over." Yeah, I saw um, that so too. we've basically so we've basically had a very very large March break, and it's very possible that Christmas vacation is going to start in mid October. Like we don't know um, what's going to happen. So there's a lot of I think if not anxiety, at least a little bit of apprehension going forward in terms of what the future holds. Are we going to have a proper second wave? Are we going to have to shut down again? Um, the, the, I, I don't know. And if I had to speculate, I would say that we probably won't because I think the big concern 
that people had was, were we going to overwhelm the hospital hospital system? And I think now, at least, we're prepared enough. Um, we probably, I think, we now we have an, an adequate stockpile of resources of personal protective equipment. We have some treatments available now, so I I'm hoping that things are prepared enough that there probably won't be uh, an overwhelming of the healthcare system, and that means that probably the government is going to be reluctant to shut things down because they are going to weigh the economic cost versus the healthcare cost. And they may decide that it's not quite worth it. Yeah. I think that's kind of the, the shutdown obviously ha had to happen, but also mm. happened because we were just unaware or there was so many unknowns. But I think now that six months have passed, you're right. I think the, the hospital systems are, are better equipped to deal with a surge in hospitalizations, even at our own hospital. I think yeah. we're even talking uh, about what to do in the event of a surge in hospitalization. So everyone has kind of gone through that trial run. Uh, and now if something did really happen, everyone would, would be prepared. But there's definitely a cost to uh, the economics of society. And I think that's what a lot of people argue against all these restrictions with COVID um, because, you know, for someone who just casually looks at the statistics, they'll probably would think, well, it's not that bad. What, there's 129,000 cases across Canada, 9,000 or 100 deaths yeah. over the last six months. So when you look at the total population of Canada of like 36, 37 million people, that seems very, very mild or, or minimal. So yeah, what what, it, what do you say to those people who who really downplay the significance of this pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I here's the thing: nine thousand deaths is still a lot of deaths, you know. And you know, there's the the old quote that's attributed to Stalin, right? One death is a tragedy; a million deaths is a statistic. Um, yeah, you know, it's very easy to write off nine thousand deaths, but it is nine thousand people that died many thousands more got very sick, were hospitalized, and still are living with the consequences of it. I mean, think of that Broadway star. Um, yeah. What was Nick, his name? Uh, Nick, Nick Exactly. Who, uh, you know, in hospital for, I think, for months, uh, you know, intubated, had blood clots, got his leg amputated, finally passed away. And he was a young guy. And I was saying this to somebody, and they responded, well, he's not that young. He was 41. And I was like, ouch, that hurts. <laughs> that really uh, hurts me. That really I'm hurt. 42. Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. Like, you know, people's lives were ruined by this. And again, if you were being asked to, you know, sell your home and live on the street or, yeah, that'd be a big ask. But for a lot of people, what we were asking them to do was work from home, you know, uh, not to do unnecessary or non-essential things. And, you know, yeah, if you owned a movie theater, I feel bad for you because your business has been substantially impacted by this, right? New movies are not coming out. People are not gathering in groups. You know, people more and more realize that they can watch movies from home on streaming services. So yeah, I feel bad for you if you happen to own a movie theater. But on the other hand, keeping people at home, the more we can do that saves lives. And, yeah. you know, I, we have to look at that balance and realize like, look, society 
always changes. Society always evolves. Certain things that were okay before are probably not going to be okay afterwards. Like I'm pretty sure shaking hands will become a thing of the past after this. Yeah. You know, what's crazy is even when I watch movies now, and I watch a movie where the characters shaking hands or hugging, it actually makes me think, wow, we actually used to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where it's like, oh, they, they never had to worry about, you know, spreading virus and whatnot. But I, I, I think, I mean, yeah, people have to think about what would happen if we didn't do anything at all and, and you just kind of let the virus spread. And even though, and you said this, I think, on one of your news segments is that, or even I think I read it in your uh, article in Montreal Gazette, was that even if it's a rare occurrence of hospitalizations or fatalities, just by sheer numbers, I mean, the more number of people that get infected, the more probability people are going to die from this, you know, in absolute yeah. terms. So even if you took half the population of Canada getting COVID, say it's like 18 million, one to 2% of that is still almost like a quarter million people, right? Yeah. 50,000, yeah. 360,000 people. That's a lot of people dying. Yeah. Um, so yeah. People have, yeah. To, have to look at it that way. But I mean, it's tough. I mean, when you're, especially when you're younger in summertime, you want to enjoy it. People have pandemic fatigue. Yeah. But, um, you know, we talked about this before, too, off the airs. Unless you're seeing people dying and collapsing on the street like like that movie um, uh, Contagion, yeah. uh, it's hard for people to really grasp the severity of it. We see it because we're in the hospital and we, we, we work in healthcare. But if you're not in healthcare and you're just reading the news and whatnot, you, it's really hard to grasp the severity of the situation. No, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people have been, you know, the people who who sort of want to argue against this say like, well, this is just as bad as the flu season, right? And, you know, we don't react to the, you know, thousands of flu deaths every year. So why are we reacting to this? And uh, my response to that is usually uh, twofold. Like one, well, we probably should be reacting to the flu deaths because thousands of people die of the flu every year. And we're surprisingly unwilling to act upon that. But um you know, the other point is, is that, look, this is actually qu quite a bit worse than the flu if you look at the of the you look at the sheer numbers of it. So, yeah, it's hard to put this in context when you're not seeing the results yourself. And it's very possible that you don't know anybody who got covid and you don't know anybody who got sick. But but if you did and you saw just the the magnitude of the human suffering, it's pretty bad because even if you uh live through it even if you don't die the people who get covid they feel very very bad for like a good week to two weeks yeah. and you know it, it, the suffering these people go through is not negligible and again if you were being asked to you know do something horrible to make it happen yeah i can understand your reluctance but the stuff that's being asked of people is very very basic things which is Keep your distance, try to limit your social interactions to the core stuff and and wear a mask when you go out into public. I mean, these are not big asks of the population. Like, you know, we're asking people to make very, very small adjustments to their daily routine. And people are, are being surprisingly unwilling to do that. I mean, not so much in Canada, but you look at the U.S. where people were making, were having protests against the lockdowns. People were protesting against masks. It was like quite shocking to yeah. see the degree. Yeah. Well, I mean, it definitely highlights the importance of good leadership during these mm -hmm. times. You know, 
I, I think some of the places and countries that have done better than the States, for example, mm. tended to have better leadership um, and a kind of a, a more consistent message, I would have to say, a consistent message of what needs to be done to prevent the spread. If there's ever inconsistencies and, and it becomes a very political and not scientific uh, driven message, uh, then that's, I think, where problems can sometimes occur. Um, yeah. yeah, I was, jo- I was, I had, had this joke with a friend of mine that she's from um, Romania, and she was saying, you know, the country did relatively well, all things considered. And so, so the 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 joke was that all the former communist countries were like very good at following government directives. So like the vestiges of communism <laughs> served many people well. Whereas, you know, the more individualistic societies like the U.S., people were like, I'm not going to do what the government tells me to do. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And that does not serve them well because they are having they are still having a very like we're talking about the virus now as if we're in a lull. And we are. The U.S. is not in a lull. The U.S. still has, you know, a lot of active infection going on. They're not going to be through with this for for some time yet. Well, I've had discussions with friends about what would have happened if COVID actually started and originated from a democratic country such as the U.S. Mm. You know, so where, you know, the what happened in Wuhan, China, I feel is unprecedented anywhere else, like in North America, where they literally complete shutdown uh, of uh, a population that's like the size of almost, I can't remember about the exact population, but it was huge. It was like yeah. the size of Chicago. Yeah. You know? And and that that wouldn't fly that well in uh, a democratic uh, city, I think. No, I agree. I mean, if, if with no pre- like now there's a precedent. So, you know, should there be another viral outbreak in another, another 10, 20 years, then maybe people will look back at this and say, okay, but yeah, no, if had this originated in something like the US, I do not think the population would have accepted it. And until we actually saw the outbreak in Northern Italy, I don't. I don't think people would have accepted a lockdown. Like we, like the we had heard about the virus in the news, and even I, I was like, you know, we we hear these seasonal viruses. Remember, we went through this with Ebola. We went through this with Zika, and everybody lost their minds. And I was trying to like calm people down. Like, look, this is not going to spread to North America. Yeah. You know, the mechanics of the virus don't really make sense. It's not going to survive in a cold weather environment like North America. And I was like, look, let's let's monitor it. But I don't like this may not this may end up being just like all the previous pandemics that didn't really affect us. Let's just watch and see. And then when you saw what happened in 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 Italy, where the hospitals were overwhelmed and, you know, people were, were not getting access to ventilators. That's really when you realize like, oh, OK, this is going to spread around the world now. We need to get serious. And that's when people said, OK, listen, if we have to lock down, I guess we have to lock down. I, um, I think you're right, because I, I was just like you. I was like, this is not going to come to Canada. Yeah. If it does, it's going to be something that's controllable. But I think mm-hmm. one of our colleagues posted a webinar on Facebook. Maybe you came across it too. Who um, One of our uh, previous fellows posted a, a webinar from an Italian ICU physician mm-hmm. where they talked about their experience. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think COVID. I remember seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. So I actually watched that. Mm-hmm. It was like half an hour. And actually, after watching it, I actually had anxiety. It actually made me think, oh, my God, this is really bad. Yeah. And this is real. And, and this could, could happen here in North America. And that's when yeah. I really started to take things a bit more serious. 
Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It was funny because somebody had, had asked me about that. And I was like, look, okay, yeah, okay, I, I'm, I'm seeing now that this is a problem. I go, but listen, we're not going to run out of resources here. Like, the government has stockpiles of these things. Like, I can't imagine that Canada would run out of ventilators. I mean, I really thought that the government would just do what they did during World War II, which is repurpose civilian companies to produce stuff that's needed in a time of emergency. And the thing that sort of shocked me the most was how surprisingly unprepared we were to supply sort of very basic equipment to the hospitals, like gowns, gloves, masks, ventilators. I mean, the vent there was no real there was no real ventilator shortage here. Like I don't think that ever became an issue. Um, but we had big issues with just basic hospital equipment. Like we were running out of gl gloves and gowns and masks for a while there. Um, so that was the thing that really like sh shocked me at most is like, wow, we have a surprisingly thin safety net in terms of the medical resources we needed. Yeah, that's something definitely I think the government's going to learn from moving forward. I think how much of it is government oversight or how much of it is thinking that not invincible, but a little bit of hubris <laughs> on our part that, you know, what happens around the world cannot happen to Canada or U.S. Because, you know, Asia had preparations for this with with SARS. So, yeah. so they knew. Um, but I think for us, this is the first time that we've had to encounter something like this. this I'm pretty sure this won't happen again. But here's the thing. We did have experience with SARS. I mean, it was limited to Toronto, right? The greater Toronto area. So the rest of Canada was spared. So you can make the argument that, you know, it didn't affect a lot of people. But I mean, we've seen what a viral pandemic can look like. Yeah. Uh, and so here's fun fact. The, the Public Health Agency of Canada was formed uh, after the SARS outbreak because we did not have a national uh, or a federal public health agency it was all provincial jurisdictions. So the federal agency was formed as, as a consequence of that. Right. But, you know, we did have the experience and yet we were still unprepared because that experience was, um, what was it, 2002. So you're talking about 18 years ago. Right. And that's long enough that people kind of forgot, uh, you know, and again, if we don't have another, uh, pandemic for another 20 years, it's very possible that people will forget how bad this was. And the same lack of planning might befall us again if we're not if we're not careful. Well, I definitely think history is always the best teacher. And I was going to ask you too, is how much of what we worry about and what we're planning for is from lessons that were taught back you know, almost over 100 years ago during the 1918 Spanish flu. Oh yeah. Yeah. How much, how much of what we're really worried about is to avoid uh, some of those uh, consequences where I think they quote 50 to a hundred million people around the world died. Yeah. From yeah. The 1918 yeah. Spanish. I mean, of course, modern medicine is different. Technology is different now, but the, the premise of the virus and the pandemic is similar, I think to now. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you're right. More people are surviving now because now we have the ability to put people on ventilators. We can keep people alive, whereas they would have died 100 years ago. Right. So um, but the uh, the spread of the virus is very similar. A lot of the same lessons are being learned. Uh, this was a virus that spread globally that did not respect borders. Um, and that had a lot of these waves, right? So when people uh, are talking about a second wave, it's because we saw that with the uh, Spanish flu. 
right. the Spanish flu was not a one-shot deal. It like you know it came and went over a period of two or three years, which is why people have said maybe this coronavirus will be with us uh, for two or three years. I think the the big difference between this and the Spanish flu is that we are hopefully going to have a vaccine for uh, COVID very, very soon. Um, there's yes. some talk that we might, yeah, we might have results from the first trials, either the uh, Moderna or the Pfizer vaccine uh, by September, October, maybe. I'm, well, you know, September might be a little bit early, but by October, November, we might have uh, the results from the phase three trials, which means we might have a vaccine available for manufacture by, you know, maybe even uh, as soon as early next year. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously very positive news. And I think the government just announced that they would be purchasing 114 million doses of yeah. vaccines if, if approved by Health Canada. So I think they're preparing for hopefully what would turn out to be very positive results from the phase three trials. But I mean, we all want to go back to normal life when we all yeah. want people to live. I guess vaccine is, is the... The easiest way, I guess. I wouldn't say easiest yeah. way. It'd be the, the the silver bullet way to to really get back to to normal life. Um, but I always thought, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I always thought if there was a way to test rapidly, yeah, where even at home, where you could identify people who are negative and positive, would allow a lot of people to go back to regular activities indoors, such as schools movie theaters, and even flying. Um, oh, yeah. If you could almost like screen for temperatures, but screen for COVID positive or negative, that would allow people to travel, uh, at least domestically. Um, yeah, I mean, well, here's the problem. I mean, the, the, the problem with the test now is that, you know, if it takes three to four days to get the results back, you basically don't know who has COVID and who doesn't. I mean, the thing that's made COVID so difficult to contain is that you can spread the virus even if you have no symptoms, yeah. right? Yeah. So with the flu, at least you know when you have the flu, right? The flu right. is not a bad cold. When you have the flu, you feel bad. Right. You are really sick. Right. And with COVID, you feel really sick. Right. But those first few days before the symptoms start, you could still infect people, which is why this virus spread as quickly and as widely as it did. And that's why actually COVID-19 is a pandemic. And a virus that's very lethal, like Ebola, never yeah. became a pandemic because people who could spread it got really sick and they got quarantined and they, they died, basically. So they can yeah. never spread the virus. Yeah, there's actually a, a weird inverse relationship. The more deadly a virus is, the less yeah. likely it is to spread to other people because the host dies too quickly. Whereas the more uh, mild the virus is, the easier it spreads because you feel fine and you go to work. I mean, think of the common cold. The common cold, which is actually not one virus, but many viruses, but the viruses that cause the cold spread rapidly through the population because they jump from person to person. And COVID, bizarrely enough, is like the worst of both worlds. It starts off very mild, so you spread it quickly. And then, in unfortunately, a small number of people, but a sizable minority of the people, it becomes very severe and makes you very sick and, and can kill you. But if you had a rapid test that could give you the results within 10 minutes, yeah. I mean, that that really would be a game changer because now... You know, you could screen people before they went into school. You could screen people as they were coming off airplanes. You could screen people in hospital, right? The big thing is now, I mean, I don't know if you've had the same problem. Like it would take us like two or three days to get the COVID tests back uh, for hospitalized patients. Yeah. So you end up isolating all these people 
waiting for their COVID to come back negative, which was, you know, an incredible drain on resources and made everything very, and made everything a lot harder. So if you could get a rapid test back, and this is what now is being discussed with the saliva tests that the FDA approved, uh, and then the next generation, we can talk about that if you want, but like these lateral flow tests, if you could do those, you would change everything. And it's not a surprise that the people, the organization that was behind the uh, saliva direct test that the FDA approved was the NBA because they want a rapid way to test their players to know who's sick and who isn't so that they can put on basketball games safely. So, which they have done so so far successfully. Yeah. You know, they haven't had any positive cases in almost, uh, what, how long have they been there now? Almost two months. Yeah. Almost two months now. Yeah, yeah. Hockey's doing okay as well. Baseball uh, is a bit of a bit of a different story because they they're traveling more because they don't have the hub system the way the the uh, the NHL did. But um, I read some of the concerns Health Canada has about yeah. approving these uh, rapid saliva home kits is that yeah. they don't think people would be able to administer the test appropriately on their own without a healthcare professional, uh, which. I mean, if it's like a pregnancy test, I don't yeah. see why people couldn't even just watch a YouTube video and yeah. uh, learn it. I'm pretty sure uh, pe- people are smart. People will figure it out, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the traditional test that most people have gotten and I've had to get, I don't know if you had to get t- tested for, for COVID, but I had to get tested for COVID. The nasal? Um, yeah, the nasal. Oh, it's yeah, not pleasant. It was it's not horrible. pleasant. It felt like a bee sting um, in my brain. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not pleasant, um, you know, but I got it. I mean, it doesn't hurt. It's not the funnest thing in the world, but, and I was lucky. I got my results back within a day. Hey, um, hey Labos, did you uh, tear up? Did I tear up? No, I did not tear <laughs> up. No, uh, I I'll okay. admit I, I did tear up a little bit. Really? Um, my, oh, my, my, my friend uh, or my colleague actually, uh, Merge Doc, was doing it for me. He's like, I'm going to warn you, Ben, this is going to hurt like a bitch. <laughs> and it, and uh, it stung. It definitely stung. Yeah. Um. Anyways, sorry. I was just kidding. I anyways, I had it. Actually, I had to, had to have it done twice, and um, you know, it it was fine. It, yeah. Listen, you live through it, but it's not pleasant. Yeah. You need a healthcare professional there. Yeah. Um. You know, and then it puts them at risk because if you imagine the person doing the test, they have to come into contact with maybe what, a couple of dozen of potentially sick people every day? Like, that is not a fun job. Yeah. So the first generation of these rapid tests and the, the NBA one, the Saliva Direct, is uh, in saliva. Now, you still have to send the sample off to the lab. So that's not the perfect rapid testing thing. Right. But the the it's a much quicker turnaround because of the technology that they use. They don't have to, um, well, unless we, 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 we won't get into the uh, nitty gritty of how the genetic testing is done. Yeah. But they're doing the same basic thing, except that they're detecting the viral RNA in the person's uh, saliva, but it's still being done at the lab. But the turnaround time is usually less than 24 hours. That really speeds things up. Right. But what would really be nuts, what would really change everything is stuff that would almost behave like a pregnancy test, and that's called lateral flow uh, tests. And basically what it is is you put uh, a bodily fluid, and for COVID it would be saliva, or there's been some companies developing it with uh, like a pinprick blood sample. So you know how with diabetes you yeah. get a drop of blood from your finger? Yeah. 
So with that, and then what these what the fluid does is it flows laterally across the test strip, which is why it's called the lateral flow test. And then it interacts with chemicals on the paper. And then they're either detect, they're usually detecting antibodies. So if they detect your antibodies, it would change color. So the way a pregnancy test works is you put a, you know, a drop of urine on the applicator, it flows laterally. If it detects the pregnancy hormone, it changes color. And that's where you see the blue cross or whatever from of the pregnancy test. Yeah. It would change color. The, the COVID-19 test would change color if it detected antibodies against the virus, meaning that you have the infection. Okay. Right. So if you could do that, and if you could get the results back within 15 minutes, now you don't need a healthcare professional. You could do it at home. You would know immediately, or you could even do it at, let's say, large events. Let's say you wanted to have a, a concert. Yeah. You could test everybody at the door, make sure nobody has COVID. So you could have the concert properly. If you wanted to screen healthcare workers before they go into a long-term care facility, you could do it that way. You could test kids and test kids in school. Right. You could test athletes before they go to a game. Right. So the big problem we have with COVID now is nobody knows if they have COVID or not. Like I always worry going to see my parents because if I've just come off a week of the hospital, how do I know if I caught COVID from a patient or not? I'm scared to go see my parents because I don't know if I have COVID, but now you could test yourself. So, yeah, you to know, me, that's, that's yeah. a more of a game changer than the vaccine, at least in the short term. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even if you had a vaccine tomorrow, yeah. you know, how, how long would it take to administer it to the entire population? And we still don't know how effective it is and, and how no. long people are effective. And I think there would still be social distancing measures in place, even with the vaccine initially, they right. wouldn't all they, of a sudden yeah. vaccinate everybody and say, okay, Everybody go back to normal life. I don't That's think right. it's like that. No, it's like, you know, the fact that a vaccine comes out in a couple of months doesn't mean we can all start licking doorknobs again, you know? Um, <laughs> and even if a vaccine is like 75% effective, which would actually be amazing, right. um, there's still going to be coronavirus. So you still have to be mindful that it's there. But if you're right, so if you could test for the virus, it would be a huge game changer. Now, these tests are not perfect. They don't tell you when you got infected. It don't, they won't tell you like how immune you are. They won't tell you if you're at the beginning or at the end of the virus. But a pregnancy test is not a perfect test either, yeah. right? A pregnancy test can sometimes be wrong, but it's generally not. It doesn't tell you if you're having twins or triplets. It doesn't tell you when you got pregnant. It doesn't tell you if you're having an ectopic pregnancy or not. Right. But it gives you the piece of information that you need to know right now, which is, are you pregnant? Yes or no. So right. if we had a rapid test that could tell us, do you have COVID? Yes or no. I mean, it's going to simplify a lot of the problems that we have now. And yeah, you're right. Yeah, it, would it would be things. like a, a temperature check before you walk into a restaurant or, I mean, right. what would be the downside of having this rapid test? Is it, is it cost? Is yeah. It... I mean, cost is some of it. Yeah. I mean, you have to make sure the test is accurate. So you don't want to apply an inaccurate like, test. Do we have any idea how sensitive and specific these lateral tests are? Well, the saliva direct test, which is the only one that I saw like hard data on, was pretty good. I think the sensitivity and specificities were over 90% compared to uh, the nasal swabs. Right. So so very comparable, right? Like I, I, I wouldn't have any qualms about the accuracy of the test. Mm -hmm. And again, I think that's why this is taking a while and why these things are like, well, why don't we put them on the market now? It's because yeah. people want to review the data. They want to make sure the tests yeah. are done properly to make sure that they are accurate. Because what you don't want is you don't want to put a bad test on the market, which is what happened with a lot of the blood antibody tests. If you remember a couple of months yeah. back, 
The FDA approved a number of these antibody tests, yeah. um, many of which proved to, to be uh, inaccurate. Right. And, uh, you know, that 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 causes more problems than it solves because you're telling people they were sick when they're not. They're telling yeah. people they're immune when they're not. And, uh, you know, you don't want to it's better to take your time and make sure that when you put a test out there, that the test actually works and gives people good information that they can then use clinically. You want people to be able to use the information to inform their practices. So, I mean, I hope we're going to start seeing this. Uh, very, very soon. Honestly, I totally agree. I really want to see this because it is a game changer. The one thing I thought about was that I guess if it's to be tested at home, how do you know someone is uh, reporting accurately their own mm -hmm. test? But I guess if they're being tested at the point of contact or entry into uh, a public space, I guess then you would have instant uh, data collection right there. So... Because if, yeah, exactly. if you just yeah. test at home, how do you know if someone's going to report accurately? They could be testing positive, but they report themselves negative. I, I, I yeah, know. I mean, listen, people can lie, right? So that's the thing. If you ask somebody, did you test at home? And if they say, yeah, yeah, I was negative. I mean, that would, for me, not be good enough as a public health intervention at any type of group event, let's say, right? You would right. have to test people at the at the doorway because the other thing too is like you could have done your test yesterday and got sick today right so the right. test only tells you whether you're whether you're infected right now or not so i mean the home test would only be useful for uh, people who are sick right in the yeah. same way that if you think you're pregnant you get somebody to bring you a pregnancy kit from yeah. the pharmacy you test yourself and now you know if you're pregnant so if you're like at home coughing with a fever and you're like, oh, Jesus, this COVID. Yeah. And if you had a home uh, COVID test, then you would know if you had COVID or not, and you know whether you can stay home or whether you can, you know, go to work or whatever. Yeah, no, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Um, no, I definitely hope. So I don't know. Who, I don't know if anyone from the government is listening to this podcast, but <laughs> <laughs> please, from Dr. I mean, Christopher Lamos, yeah. Yeah. Please, hopefully I it's coming. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, Health Canada has said that the saliva direct, the one that was approved uh, in the States, uh, is under review now. And a, and a number of these products are also under review by Health Canada. So they probably are coming. Uh, it's just, you know, it's frustrating because you want we want everything to be done today and they are taking their time and probably with good reason. So yeah. um, my I, I suspect we'll see this stuff soon. I just hope it's, you know, sooner rather than than later. Yeah. Okay, let's just talk very briefly about treatments. Um, have you heard anything new about upcoming treatments? Uh, you know, the ones that I am aware of that have been uh, used, I guess, clinically is dexamethasone yeah. uh, for people who are uh, intubated and ventilated. Yeah. Uh, and then remdesivir is to reduce length of uh, recovery. Yeah. Um, have you heard anything else? No, I mean, most of the other stuff that we've talked about is about what doesn't work. So uh, Plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. Convalescent uh, plasma is getting a lot of uh, not newsworthy, well, newsworthy buzz, but probably not appropriate. But what do you think about convalescent plasma? Yeah, so I mean, the, the data behind it is not great. So what happened was there was a press conference and everybody said it reduces mortality by 35%. But that number wasn't based on anything. And even uh, Han, the... Uh, the head of the FDA quoted that number in a press conference and people started giving him a lot of flack uh, sort of, you know, and, and deservedly so that, uh, you know, that number was not based on any actual data. 
Um, so, and the, the implication became that the FDA was succumbing to political pressure from the White House because, and then they did the same thing um, today. The FDA announced that it might grant uh, provisional uh, acceptance to a vaccine even before the phase three trials are done. Again, yeah. the worry being that it's be because uh, President Trump yeah. wants to have a vaccine before the election for political purposes. So there's a worrisome thing going on here where the FDA seems to be caving in some places to political pressure from the White House. And that's not a good thing because you want your government regulator to be independent, to base their decisions based on science, not on political pressure. Now, convalescent plasma may have some benefit. We shouldn't discount it entirely because you're essentially just transfusing antibodies. So if you get like a good dose of antibodies early in the course of the illness, then yeah, it might have some benefit. Is it going to is it going to be a game changer? No, I don't think it will. It's also very hard to get plasma from people who have recovered. Like getting people to donate blood is tough. So I'm not sure that it's it. Convalescent plasma is not what's going to save the world. Right. Um, it may be useful. It's fine, but I think people really overstated its benefits, and you know we're talking about it as if it was a wonder uh, treatment when it really, really is not. Yeah, I think people are just reaching for anything that's oh, effective yeah. at this point. You know? Well, and that's the thing, like for a while there was like vitamin D, vitamin D is going to protect you from coronavirus. And like, nope, there's no evidence that that's the case. I mean, I listen, I, sure. I mean, listen, you want to drink some milk and there's vitamin D in it, you know, fine. Right. Uh, it's not going to protect you against coronavirus. I mean, again, people were get, people were really overreacting to very, very shaky evidence because, yeah. you know, when there was no treatment, they're like, well, we have to do something. You know, people exactly. were, were really grasping at straws, I think, at the beginning, although now I feel like they've calmed down a little bit yeah okay so um i want to finish up with the, the hot topic uh with covid and uh, back to school because mm -hmm. um, you know everyone all parents uh, students are preparing to go back to school after the labor day weekend um so what, what are your thoughts about um back to school i know you, you don't you don't have kids chris but no. if you had a kid in elementary school would you feel comfortable Send your kid back to school. So you know, I've done. I've been doing a lot of interviews today because today was the first day back to school in Quebec oh, for okay. the English school board. Okay. Um. So I've been, and everyone's been asking me that question, like, if you had kids, would you send them to school? And the answer is, I really don't know. I really yeah. don't know. Um. I, I we don't. So how would how you make that gonna... decision? What would you tell parents? Like, what factors do you have to consider? I think you have to consider is who's in your household, number one. So do you have a high risk or immunocompromised person in your household? Um, because your kid, if they get sick, is probably going to be fine. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Young people are usually the vast, vast, vast majority of the time are going to be fine. The danger is, does your child go to school, get COVID, bring it back to you and get you sick? Right. So if, if it's just you and your partner and you're both young and healthy, mm -hmm. you're probably going to be okay and it should be fine. But if you're in a multi-generational household and you have elderly grandparents in the house and they have pre-existing medical conditions, now I'm suddenly a lot more worried, right? Because right. the consequences of bringing home COVID are much higher. So that's like sort of the first thing. Right. And the second thing is to look at what security, uh, security or what um, uh, safety measures the school has in place. Right. Um, you know, are the kids wearing masks in the classroom? Are the kids spread out? And um, 
you know, in some cases, the public, uh, you know, the, the, the public health measures might be appropriate. And in some cases, they might not. It's been very hard to find enough teachers and to find enough classrooms to space kids out because, you know, we don't have that many spare teachers yeah. just sitting around doing nothing, you know. So reducing class sizes has been tough. So I think there's some concern. I mean, the, the big thing is really going to be is like, is your province or state, if you're in the U.S., but is your local area equipped enough to test people quickly? Right. Like if you can test people quickly and identify who's sick and who's not and bring them out of the school, then you prevent a pandemic. And again, this gets back to the rapid testing we we're talking about. If you have rapid testing in schools and the minute somebody has symptoms, test everybody in the classroom, figure out who's positive and yeah. isolate them, then you're good. Right. But if it takes you four days to get the results back and you can't test people, it's going to be tough. Yeah. It's going to be really, really tough. So I have some qualms. I don't have to make that decision. Um, I don't know what I would have. I honestly don't know what I would have done in that setting. Would I have been too scared to send my kids to school? Maybe. Maybe I would have waited and seen. But I have a lot of friends who are like, listen, my kids need to get back to school. They're they're starting to fall behind as it is. We need to, as I've been telling people, you know, we need to, we need to teach our kids stuff. We need to teach them how to read. Then we need to teach them how to write. We need to teach them, you know, who won World War II and which side we were fighting on just in case they forget stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, there's things we need to teach them and, uh, it's hard to teach kids at home. You know, it is hard to homeschool your kids. It is not an easy thing to do. So yeah, I have a, my sister, uh, has three kids all under the age of nine ages yeah. between five to nine and homeschooling is very tough. It's uh, yeah. it's a big burden for the parents and kids need social interaction. Yeah. Right? You can teach them facts, but at the end of the day, they, they need to interact with their peers um, and they probably learn better that way too, for sure. But yeah. does, 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 does decision also matter of your region and whether there's, you know, cases upticking in your area versus say, if you live in a community that may not have many cases could be safer, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if you're in a rural community where there were not many COVID cases and there's not much spread and, you know, the population density is low enough that people are spread out. I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot safer, right? Remember the kids have to catch COVID from somebody, right? The school yeah. is closed now. There's no COVID in the school. The school opens. The kids have to bring COVID in from the community. They have to catch it at home and bring it in and spread it to the other kids who are then going to bring it into their homes. Right. So if there's no COVID in your community, then the whole point is moot. The risk is zero. Right. Okay. Um, but if you're living in a major urban center, especially a major urban center where there was a lot of COVID and it's still circulating, then yeah, I'm a little bit more worried. So if you're living in a rural part of Canada, you're probably going to be okay. But if you were living in a major urban center in the U.S. where cases were raging, um, you know, I'd be a little bit more worried about reopening schools. So yeah, the, the, the local situation on the ground makes a huge, huge impact on, you know, how safe this practice is. So yeah, that's another big thing you need to take into account as you're making that, uh, that decision. Yeah. I mean, my, my daughter's only one, so I definitely, you, you have time, I, I have you time have... and uh, feel maybe lucky that I don't have to make that decision with my wife. Uh, yeah. it's definitely a personal decision. So yeah. There is no black or white answer. So everyone has to make their own decisions and consider their own factors. Yeah. Um, but yeah, not easy for sure. Yeah. But anyways, I, 
I really, uh, I think we should try to wrap up, but I want to ask you one last question, Chris. Sure. Is, uh, what's your, if you look uh, into your crystal ball, yeah. Well, what's your prediction on how things are going to play out for the remainder of the year and for next year? Like how long do you think you can't tell for sure, but yeah. when you're in your mind, how long do you think things are going to last for? Yeah. So uh, as the old joke goes, prediction is hard, especially about the future. Um, <laughs> I think we're probably going to have a vaccine uh, rollout by early next year. Uh, and that's going to change a lot. I think we're going to ride out the current cold and flu season. Um, so, you know, January, February, March, April. Uh, and then whatever peak we have, we'll probably start to go down by then. And then by next summer, uh, as we get into a lull, if we can roll out and vaccinate a bunch of people, I think that's going to be the beginning of the end of this. Because if we can vaccinate everybody and, you know, if we can have long lasting immunity on this and we can bring the number of circulating cases down and get rapid testing into place, it could be that we can prevent a third wave next fall. Right. Yeah. So that's going to be that that's going to be the 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 um, the point where we see how well we've done. So, I mean, this year we're still going to have to write it out, I think, much as we are doing now. But it's going to be the vaccine, the rapid testing, and to see if we can actually get transmission down to zero or to very near zero. And if we can do that over next summer, next fall, we might be, you know, pretty much back to normal with maybe some small adjustments into, you know, how we behave and, and, and what we do. I mean, there is still a benefit to some of the social distancing that we've been doing now. And the point is Australia had a very, very good flu season uh, this mm. past winter. Remember, it's summer for us, it's winter for them. Right. So all this stuff has a benefit beyond COVID. It prevents other severe diseases like the flu. So it might be that we retain some of this in terms of you know how we practice social distancing, keeping people home from school when they're sick and whatever. But my guess is that we have to ride out the current winter, fall, winter into spring. And by then, we're going to start to see the light at the, at the end of the tunnel. Wow. I am all for that. I hope you're correct. And actually, I feel the same way uh, with you that we're going to have to ride it out for this winter. And then hopefully there's a breakthrough vaccine that comes out next year. I really hope you're right because I really want to go out to Montreal uh, next <laughs> summer and visit you, Chris. It would be good I, to see I, you, man. I, I have not seen you in some time. I know, I know. And uh, I I usually try to come out east once a year because my sister and her family live out east. So we usually fly into Montreal or Toronto. But if I am able to come out next summer, I'll definitely uh, catch up with you and uh, have dinner and drinks with you and some of our other friends. So uh, thank you. Thank you, Chris. It was really good catching up. And thank you for doing this podcast with me. My pleasure, man. You take yeah. care of yourself. Stay safe out there. You know what? 10 years from now, we'll replay this podcast. <laughs> and say, 10 years ago, can you believe that? Can you believe we were there during yeah. the COVID pandemic? I yeah. know. I'm going to play this for my daughter when she's uh, old enough to understand. Yeah. She won't remember any of this. So. No. Yeah. no. Thank you, Labos. That was awesome. Take care, man. Take care, man. Bye. So